a harmonizing of the gospel records concerning the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection indicates that by the time you get to where we are, by the time you get to John chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Savior, has already by this point appeared to the following people. Now, not all of this is recorded in John. It's a harmonizing. But by this juncture, verse 19 of John 20, Jesus has appeared first to Mary Magdalene. We actually saw that in the first part of the chapter. Jesus then, after that, appeared to a group of women, the same group of ladies that Mary had originally come to the garden tomb with early that morning. Jesus has already appeared to two disciples who had left Jerusalem, making their way to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them. They didn't recognize Jesus. He expounded on the scriptures. It wasn't until Jesus broke bread that they saw him for who he was. No doubt, the scars in his hands. Jesus has appeared to these two men. Also, at some point, and we don't have any record of the account of the, uh, of the occurrence. It's somewhat private. But Jesus, by this juncture, has also appeared somewhere in Jerusalem. Again, we have no details other than the fact it happened to Simon Peter. A one-on-one. Oh, to have been a fly on that wall, right? While John, our author, has yet to encounter the risen Lord for himself. It should be noted that according to John 20, verse 8, John is already convinced of the resurrection. He didn't need to see the risen Lord to be convinced of it. As a matter of fact, according to John, when he went to the empty tomb and he saw the the clothes, the burial clothes lying there, John writes that he saw and he believed. The evidence there alone was enough for John. Though the list of those who've encountered Jesus was growing rapidly by Sunday evening, keep in mind that nine of the 11 remaining disciples are still skeptical of the resurrection. We began with 12. Judas offed himself. Peter and John are already convinced. There's nine remaining. In in reality, Mary, Magdalene, the other ladies, they'll bring a report to these nine men sometime mid-morning. Luke chapter 24, 11 recounts that their words seemed like idle tales. And they didn't believe their testimony. Nine men, even with the testimony of the women, are still remaining skeptical. Even after these two disciples who've encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus come to these nine and recount their experiences along with the presence of Peter's testimony. Mark 16 verse 13 says that these men still did not believe. Now now it's with that backdrop that we picked up the narrative last Sunday, beginning with verse 19 of John 20. We'll get a running head start before we get to verse 24. We're told, Then the same day at evening, this being Sunday, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, shackled, locked down. The disciples were assembled. This is a formal gathering. They're fearing the Jews, John said, that in the midst of all of this, Jesus came and stood in the midst And he said to them, Peace, shalom, be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. The same word we find back in Genesis, where God breathed life into Adam. Jesus breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Spiritual life being imparted. Jesus continues, if you forgive the sins of any, 
they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And no doubt, there's a lot jammed into this. I encourage you to listen back to last Sunday's Bible study for more. Verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I think that in many ways it is a tragic mischaracterization of this particular disciple that he has been nicknamed by theologians dating back to roughly the 5th century as Doubting Thomas. It's a mischaracterization. Personally, I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's fair of the man. I don't think it's a fair presentation or understanding of the text or what the man said that we read. Consider to begin with how in John 11 verse 16, we read that when facing the prospects of Jesus being in serious danger, you know, Jesus keeps telling him, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem for the Passover. There's all these rumors being swirled about that his life would be in danger. That there were men out to get him. That there was a plot had been hatched. Traitors in the midst. Even with all of that, the disciples try to talk Jesus out of it. This is a bad idea. It's a bad idea, interestingly enough, also for Thomas. We're told in two different places he's called the twin. If you notice, it's a capital twin, capital T. Most scholars believe that he's called the twin not because he had a biological twin, but because he looked like Jesus. So if you're Thomas, you're a little freaked out about going to Jerusalem when people are out to get Jesus because you might be mistaken for Jesus. You're the body double. And so in John 11, after Jesus refuses their counsel, refuses their advice, Thomas said to his fellow disciples, okay, let's go. And then he says that we may die with him. You see, Thomas was not a doubter. In fact, the man is not shifty in his convictions. He had resolved in himself. We're going to go to Jerusalem and likely die. Jesus wants to go. We're not talking him out of it. So you know what? Let's roll. Come what, come what may. He was prepared. You know, for some unspecified reason that John fails to provide us, Thomas inadvertently finds himself, the lone disciple, absent for this incredible supernatural appearance of Jesus. Thomas, at some point the same day, he returns, comes back to the room, the secret knock on the door, and what does he find? He finds that these other disciples, his friends, his running mates, his compadres, they're freaking out and ecstatic as to what they've just seen. And let's, be, let's, let's have a little compassion for Thomas, right? That stinks. Like, that stinks. Have you ever been the one person, the one person who missed out on the moment or you missed the joke that everyone is talking about? And, like, you're trying to kind of giggle along and laugh, but, like, you're the one guy out. You missed it. This is the situation. This is the scene that Thomas is in. He's not there. Jesus appears. By the time he gets back, Jesus is gone. And Thomas is like, yo, what's up, guys? And look, we saw Jesus. And he's like, Ah, bummer. Like now, Thomas is not only the only disciple who's yet to have a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He's the one man out. 
but his friends won't shut up about it. In fact, in the Greek, the tense that we find in this statement, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. The tense here, it's active, it's continual. It wasn't that they were like, Thomas, sit down, we got to just tell you what happened. It's that they sat him down, told him what happened, and then proceeded to keep telling him and keep telling him and keep telling him. They're kind of rubbing it in. They go on and on and on about what Thomas missed. It, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious when you're reading through this that when Thomas finally responds to them at some point, he's frustrated. You would be too. Let's be real. And then he says, unless I see his hands and put my finger into the print of the nails and my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's adamant. He's strong. And again, there are those that are critical of Thomas's outburst, doubting Thomas. And yet, for a moment, consider, what is Thomas supposed to do? Like, what is he supposed to say? Is he supposed to be like, guys, it's awesome. In fact, I'm going to base my entire belief on Jesus' resurrection off of an experience I didn't have, but you did. That's not fair. You see, I don't believe that Thomas is doubting Jesus' resurrection. In fact, I'm not even so sure that he's voicing a skepticism as to their testimony, their experience. Instead, I'm convinced Thomas is actually here making a declaration as to what his faith in Jesus' resurrection necessitated. Thomas here is articulating what? At its core, a desire to see Jesus for himself. And that's hardly to be criticized. Thomas is adamant that his faith would not be based on the experiences of another, even if it's trusted friends. Thomas mandated a personal encounter with the risen Lord. That's what he wanted. The reason I believe it's misguided to characterize Thomas as being a doubter centers on the simple fact that his perspective is 100% right. This is the correct outlook. Like, I hope you know this morning that your faith in Jesus cannot be based upon someone else's encounter or relationship with Jesus. Let me repeat that. Your faith in Jesus cannot be based on someone else's encounter or someone else's relationship with Jesus. Sadly, I'm afraid, in the Bible Belt culture of the American South, this particular point is lost on many. Like, understand your faith, friend. Your faith, the faith of your parents, cannot be bequeathed to you. You aren't born into a faith, nor is faith hereditary. Christian faith can't even be passed through marital extension. Growing up in a Christian home, growing up in a Christian home, norm no more makes you a Christian then growing up in San Francisco automatically makes you, well, maybe a different analogy. Living in a garage makes you a car. Like cultural Christianity, friends, isn't Christianity at all. You know, the Islamic world, it's true. They may equate the red, white, and blue to Christianity. 
But being a patriotic, freedom-loving, flag-toting, gun-carrying, Fox News-watching American will not automatically garner you passages through the pearly gates. And we know being a Democrat won't either. See, Thomas, Thomas rightly understood. Don't miss it. A genuine faith, a faith that's willing to forsake all, requires a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Thomas is not willing to settle this point, to compromise. His friends are telling him about their experiences. He's like, no, I need my own if I'm going to believe. He's adamant. He's passionate. Thomas needed an encounter with the risen Jesus for himself to believe. Well, we're told in verse 26, after eight days, this would be the following Sunday, his disciples were again inside. We could presume the same room. And Thomas was with them. You can imagine it's been a long week for poor old Thomas. And Jesus came. The doors being shut, and he stood in the midst. And he said, and this message is to all, peace to you, the identical message from before. But then Jesus, we're told, says to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, apistos, or faithless. But Thomas, believe, pistos, or be persuaded. So Thomas answered. It's not a question he's answering in the Greek. He's just responding to Jesus' statement, his exhortation. But he says to the Lord, he says to Jesus, My Lord, me kurios, Christ, Savior, and my God, my Theos. See, Thomas knew correctly that his faith needed a personal encounter with Jesus to be its foundation. Most notably, though, Jesus was more than willing to oblige. Not only does he appear to Thomas along with the others, but Jesus, he ends up repeating Thomas's words from a week earlier right back at him. You know, Thomas, a week ago, you said you needed to touch and feel. Okay, you needed a personal encounter to believe. I get you. I heard you. Here I am. Is that good enough? Will you go from unbelieving, faithless, to now being persuaded? Is this what you needed? Are you convinced? You see, for Thomas, the appearance of the risen Jesus and the invitation to reach and to look, <laughs> that ends up being more than enough. Case in point, you notice what we don't find a record of? We don't actually find a record of Thomas actually touching Jesus' hands or putting his hand into the side. He didn't need to do it. His faith in Jesus' appearing was secure to the point that now he declares for all to hear probably the most theologically sound statement of any apostle recorded in all of the Gospels. He says, declares Jesus to be, and it's personal, my Lord. My God, it, it got real for Thomas. Presbyterian minister and author Frederick Buncher, he once wrote, quote, It hardly matters how the body of Jesus came to be missing, because in the last analysis, what convinced the people that he had risen from the dead was not the absence of his corpse, but his living presence. And so it has been ever since. 
Thomas knew, rightly, correctly, that a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus was essential for his faith, for his belief, for his commitment. And then that moment happened. Jesus appeared. Jesus stepped through the void, stepped into his life, and the trajectory of this man, what he would do, how he would live, it forever changed. According to the testimony of several of the early church fathers, again, this is not scriptural, it's just historical, but the evidence suggests that around 52 AD, which was the first wave of Christian persecution there in Jerusalem, this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 8, that because of the persecution, Thomas, 52 AD, he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem, boards a boat, and he sails east, beyond the reach of the Roman Empire, into India with the message of the gospel. Thomas in India would minister, would preach, evangelize for 20 years. He would be faithful. And then on July 3rd, 72 AD, according to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, Thomas would be martyred for his faith. He would die by being thrust through with a spear. He ticked off some pagan priests. Thomas's faith was rightly founded upon a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and therefore that faith would never, ever waver. How could it? He knew Jesus. You know, not only does Thomas leave behind a powerful legacy during his own day, but in India today, right now, there are a group of believers that are known as the St. Thomas Christians. And they trace their origins, the origins of their movement, all the way back to the initial work started by this man. A legacy that still exists today. Far from a a doubting Thomas. This morning, if your friends have been constantly telling you about their personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus... And your response, let's say, has been very similar to that of Thomas. Your friends keep telling you about Jesus, telling you about what Jesus is doing in their lives, telling you about what Jesus wants to do in your life. And you keep hearing all of this stuff, just like Thomas, and your reaction is like, guys, that's great for you. That's cool. I'm not knocking it. I'm not doubting it. But here's the deal. Until I encounter Jesus for myself, I just can't believe the way that you do. If you had that type of a reaction, there's a few things I want you to consider from Thomas's experience that are important. First and foremost, this reaction to your Christian friends, that you have to encounter Jesus for yourself. I want you to know that is absolutely, completely reasonable. In fact, I'd say it's responsible, logical, You might even say biblical. Robbie Zacharias once wrote, What I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. And the scriptures don't contradict that in any way. (laughs) Atheist Richard Dawkins, he once made this statement. He says, Faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. The irony of Dawkins' statement is that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the very concept of faith is defined for us. 
It's defined as, quote, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's no question that Richard Dawkins didn't consult the Bible for his definition of faith. You see, never once does the Holy Spirit demand from you a blind or an unfounded, unsubstantiated type of faith. Never once will Jesus command you to just believe. Stop asking questions. Just believe. According to the Bible itself, there are two foundational concepts, components, necessary for genuine faith. And what are they? Substance and evidence. That being said, the core issue when it comes to faith in Jesus is not often a lack of evidence or a substance to the belief. Rather, I have found that the issue eventually boils down to desire. Like more often than not, the skepticism of one's mind is nothing more than the masking of the hardness of one's heart. The key with Thomas, you can have questions, you can be skeptical, I need to see this for myself. I need to feel it and touch it, the substance, the evidence. I, I've got to, hey, it, it sounds good, but for me to believe it, the, the facts have to work. That's okay. That's cool. Here's my question for you, though. The key with Thomas is that he wanted to believe. He had all kinds of questions. All kinds, he had desire, but he wanted it. Do you? Like in the midst of all of your doubt and all your questions and all those things that might be hanging you up right now, do you still want to see Jesus? Do you want to meet Jesus? Do you want to have in your life what others have? The second point I want to make is that if you sincerely want to encounter the resurrected Jesus for yourself, in much the same way as Thomas, well, learn from his example and here's how. Keep hanging around those friends who've already encountered him. You notice from the text how this radical moment of change in Thomas's life began? Look back. John writes, And after eight days, Jesus' disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Think about it. Thomas ends up having a personal encounter with Jesus, one that he longed to have on Sunday <laughs> as he's hanging out with his believing friends. Like, do you think that's a coincidence or an accident? You see, Thomas hung out with people who had what he wanted. And that's wise. Now, I have found that one of the best places, not the only place, but one of the best, for a genuine seeker to encounter the risen Jesus for the first time tends to be at church with believers on Sunday. Here's why this is the case. Even though we can't see Jesus, anytime Jesus' disciples are gathered together, the Bible tells us spiritually Jesus is standing in the midst. He's always with us. And John his revelation of Jesus, Revelation chapter 1, as he looks at the present activities of Jesus right now, he sees Jesus as a high priest doing what? 
walking in the midst of the lampstands, the church. He's in our midst. You know, if there was any question that Jesus was with them, even though they couldn't see him, all doubts removed when he shows up and does what? Repeats almost verbatim to Thomas, back what Thomas had said earlier, meaning Jesus was listening. He was present. They couldn't see him, but he was there. And my point here is rather simple. Don't overthink it. It's only logical that if you want to encounter Jesus, genuinely, you want to encounter Jesus, you should go where he tends to be and hang out with those he's often with. It's not rocket science. And let me add kind of a sub-point to this. If you are a believer, as many of you are, hopefully ministering, reaching a seeker, it is for this very reason you should never underestimate the power of bringing that person you're ministering to to church with you on Sunday. Yes, God's work, I'll repeat, is not restricted to one day of the week, nor is it restricted to a church facility, heaven forbid. But it is kind of a good place to start. Like Thomas was with believers on Sunday, and there was a moment that Jesus broke through the void and revealed himself to the one man that was there that needed it most. You know, it's safe to assume that cultural trends have likely worsened over 15 years. But back in 2003, Dr. Tom Rainier published a groundbreaking book, research, he had compiled. The book was titled, The Unchurched Next Door. And through his data gathering and the interviews and whatnot, he, he discovered two interesting realities about church life and evangelism. First, Rainier discovered that nearly 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they're invited. A lot of people will come, they just need to be invited. They just need you to extend the invitation. Secondly, Rainier found that 98% of church members never invite the unchurch to church. Let's think about that for a moment. You have 82% of the unbelieving world out there willing to come to church if they're invited, but you only have 2% of the church willing to make the invitation. It's a problem, isn't it? According to a recent study published by George Barna, he found that 50% of all decisions to come to church were driven by someone with a close personal relationship with the individual, a relative, a friend, excuse me, to come to Christ. You see, what's sad is the same study also discovered that 39% of Christians feel as though evangelism is not even their responsibility. Like, we have a problem. We have a problem in church culture. We have a problem with reaching the lost because the way to reach the lost is you going and inviting people, you reaching the lost, you going to that friend and say, I've encountered Jesus, man. You're kind of getting annoying. No, but seriously, I encountered Jesus. Yeah, but I've got to encounter him for myself. No, I get that, and that's fair. So why don't you hang out with me? Because I hang out with Jesus a lot, and there's a whole group of us on Sunday morning. We also get together. We've all encountered Jesus. We hang out with Jesus. He comes and hangs out with us. If you want to meet Jesus, I'll introduce you. Just come and hang out with us. The problem is that's not happening. It's not happening. Barna noted that fewer churches emphasize and equip people for evangelism these days, and the results are obvious and undeniable. The implications of ignoring gospel outreach are enormous. 
All the, quote, church growth strategies in the world cannot compensate for the absence of an authentic transmission of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for humanity. One-on-one, personal. In light of all of this, let me just ask you, don't show hands, but who are you right now? Think about it. Who are, your, who are you currently witnessing to? And when I say witnessing, I'm not saying that like you're being all preachy, but who are you sharing your faith with? Shining a light to? Anyone? Like, how many people at your job actually know you are a Christian? When was the last time you invited someone to come to church with you? Simple enough. Not overbearing. Guys, the Great Commission was not a grand suggestion. The commission to go into the world to make disciples of the nations. Yeah, I get it. You might get nervous talking to someone about Jesus. I I understand that. But here's the deal. I'm not nervous at all to tell someone about Jesus. So I'll just make a deal with you. You get them here, and I'll tell them about Jesus. It's a win-win for both of us. The Great Commission. Guys, it's our calling. It's our purpose It's our mission. It's why we're on earth to begin with. Finally, if you're here this morning and you really relate to Thomas, just his experience, you have a sincere desire to encounter Jesus for yourself to the point that you're willing to hang out with other people and come to church, I just want to tell you this. I want to actually make a promise to you. If that's you and you sincerely want to encounter Jesus, Prepare yourself for that to happen soon. It will. The reason I can say this with complete confidence is that no one ever seeking Jesus has failed to find him. Here's why. Jesus, he's good at a lot of things, but he's terrible at one thing. Jesus is terrible at hide and seek. He's not very good at the game. Like, Think about it this way. I've got little kids. When you play hide-and-seek with little kids, who really finds who? The seeker or the person they're seeking? Like, sure, it's your responsibility to seek out the little kids. But because kids experience more joy when they get discovered, they will do everything they possibly can to be seen, to be found, right? I'm going to count to ten, go hide, and they hide behind Something obviously not concealing them. And you're like, I don't know where Theodore is. And Theo's like, I'm here. I'm here. Where are you? Dad, I'm right here. Like, terrible hide and seek. Like, you've missed the whole point, child. But that's, that's Jesus. You know, with Jesus, the only way, as with kids, that you aren't discovered is if you, if you fail to seek. It's the, it's, Theo, go hide. Dad will be there in a minute. And then I go back to the ball game. Dad, you never found me. Yeah, I, never, I was never seeking. But man, 30 minutes of quiet was awesome. The only way you're not discovered is if you don't seek, because kids love to be found. You see, in the same way, Thomas is seeking after Jesus. 
Thomas genuinely wants to encounter the resurrected Lord for himself. It's why he stayed connected with those who had. And what I find amazing is that in the end, who finds who? Jesus appears to a seeking Thomas. Again, I say, no, no one seeking Jesus has ever failed to find him because Jesus loves to be found. So Jesus said to him, verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In order to understand what Jesus is saying here, it's important to keep in mind first that Thomas nor the other disciples whose belief in Jesus has manifested from an encounter with Jesus and the physical realm, none of them are being rebuked here. This is not a rebuke of them. Nor is their faith trying to be diminished by Jesus in any way. That's not what's happening. Instead, Jesus is pointing out that those who believe in him through an encounter, not dependent upon physically seeing him, will end up having a greater blessing. You see, in Thomas's situation as with all the other disciples who are present for his appearances. Their encounter with a resurrected Jesus, it takes place in the physical realm. They could literally see Jesus with their eyes. They could hear his voice with their ears. And yet Jesus here, it's amazing, but he's saying that there would be a far greater blessing for those who place their faith in him without such an experience in the physical realm. Let me explain why this is the case. Follow me, track with me. It's true, the conditions of one's first experience with something often establishes the parameters for that experience moving forward. So much so, that when a condition is now missing from the experience itself, that experience is hardly the same. Let me give you an example to kind of illustrate this. Let's say your dad takes you to see the Atlanta Braves Play baseball in person. You're a young child. The first trip, man, I mean, you remember everything about it. It was you and your dad. You remember where you sat. You remember the sights and the sounds, the smells, the taste of Cracker Jacks and hot dogs and ice-cold Coca-Cola. Every year, you and your dad was your thing. You always went and you caught a ball game. Well, over time, at some point, your dad passes away. And you decide you're going to go catch a ball game. I mean, everything is the same. Intentionally. It's the same seats that you always sat in, the same sights and sounds and parking spot and refreshments, same smell. And yet, I think we're being honest, that while everything is the same, nothing is the same. Why? Because the presence of dad was an essential condition of your first experience. Now that dad is gone, the truth? I mean, you'll love the Braves. You'll cheer them on. You'll go to games. But no game will ever quite feel the same. You'll always be missing something. Missing someone. Dad's gone. And thus a void is left. You'll never shake that. Understand, for the folks who came to faith because they had seen the risen Jesus, once Jesus ascends to heaven, 
Moving forward, something would always be missing from their lives. Sure, these men and women would have the same Holy Spirit that you and I have today, and yet the essential condition tied to their first experience would no longer be available. Jesus was gone. When Jesus says here, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, this word blessed, same word we find in the Beatitudes, but the word literally translated is happier. He's actually saying, happier are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, the first believers who came to faith by encountering a physical Jesus would always miss what they could no longer see. And yet, in contrast to that, for you and I, well, we don't share the same dynamic, do we? The initial conditions for our faith never change. You and I, we've encountered Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, through His written Word, the revelation of His Word. And then we find ourselves moving from that point forward, being, being changed and guided and empowered through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. We have His Word and we have His Spirit. Initial conditions, they continue forever. And as a result, we have a unique and special blessing because while we may not be able to see Jesus and, and maybe have the core desire too, we don't have that from a position of loss. We haven't lost anything. And thus we can be happier. As he's often done throughout his gospel narrative, John breaks for a moment and he gives us some commentary. Verses 30 and 31, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs, and the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In our introduction to this gospel of grace, I noted how one of the main differences between this final gospel and the three synoptics before it was that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke set out to provide a written record of events, John writes with a, a specific, a particular intent. You see, unique to John's gospel is that he intends very particularly to invoke a decision from the audience from you and I, from the reader. This gospel, it demands in many ways a verdict, a decision from you and from me. In fact, everything that John includes, he does for, for a singular reason, and he tells us. He says, and truly, Jesus did many other signs, and truly, but these, it's a contrast, referring to seven signs, these, these signs, are written that you may believe. Back in John 2, verse 11, with Jesus' first miracle, the transforming of water into wine, John says that this was the beginning of signs. Moving forward, Jesus will lit, John will list six additional signs before concluding chapter 20 with the ultimate sign being the resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 4, John records the second sign as being Jesus' healing of the nobleman's son. The third documented in John 5 is the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The fourth, feeding of the 5,000, and fifth, his walking on water, are laid out in John 6. In John 9, you'll find the sixth sign being the incredible healing of the man who had been born blind. And the seventh and final being Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after four days, recorded for us in John 11. 
What you should remember, though, is that every single one of these signs, John includes to reveal to the reader more and more of the person of Jesus so that you would know two things about Jesus. One, that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. And two, that Jesus is the Son of God, the God-man, God incarnate. That you would reach the same conclusion, interestingly enough, of Thomas. That in looking at this mountain of evidence, this testimony, these signs, this person, that you would say, he is my Lord and my God. John's up front that he wants to convince you of these things about the Lord. And his hope, he says, that you may have life in his name, present tense. Not an everlasting life that starts when we die, but an everlasting life that begins today that lasts forever. Everlasting. Life and that more abundantly. John not only invites the seeker to believe in Jesus as both their Savior and their God, just like Thomas, but he wants you to know that it is only through such a belief that you can experience such a life and find that joy and that peace, that satisfaction. As we close chapter 20, But before we move into the final chapter of John's Gospel, which we'll get to next Sunday, it is worth acknowledging something up front. As you read through this, you close John 20, and then you turn the page. The transition is awkward. In fact, it's a bit clunky. The truth is there's kind of this undeniable sense as you just read through the Gospel that John concludes his narrative here in John 20. Don't you get that sense? He sums it up. This is the point of writing. This is these signs and all of this. He closes his gospel with the story of Thomas, which is a perfect illustration of it all. He signs it. He puts the dot. He's done. Like We'll see next week that when you turn the page to chapter 21, the text comes across as if it's kind of an add-on. You'll feel this. You'll sense it. That John added this chapter at a later date. And personally, I believe that's true. And that John specifically did it. In 1881, a Greek language version of the New Testament was finally published after 28 years of tireless editing by Brooke Westcott and Fenton Hort using the earliest transcripts, manuscripts of the Greek that were available. Both men were expert scholars, theologians, fluent in ancient Greek languages. Their ultimate conclusion concerning John 21 was that since the core style, grammar, and language is identical to the rest of John's gospel, there is no question, no doubt, that John's the author. So let's just set that aside. John wrote it. The question is, is when? Westcott's theory was that John likely added the chapter after the fact, but before the final publication. The reason that's important is that there's not one ancient manuscript of the Gospel of John that excludes or omits chapter 21. With this in mind, consider for a minute, why would John feel the need to add one more chapter to his Gospel after it was done? First and foremost, there is no doubt by the pure substance of the text itself, that John wrote, hoping to put to bed a controversy. There had been a controversy swirling throughout the first century church. 
that went something like this. That Jesus had promised John that John would not die before Jesus returned. John was very advanced in age. He was the last of the twelve to pass. And that people kept looking at John. Jesus is going to come back before John dies. And John writes this chapter to address this rumor. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus said. Let me actually explain what he said and what it meant. So in some ways, John writes here later to just correct the misconception that began circulating after he was already done. Aside from this, it's also interesting that this appendix or postscript to the Gospel of John ends up centering itself, the narrative, on one main character. We'll see next Sunday how it centers on Peter, the Apostle Peter. John not only takes the time to record how Jesus had predicted Peter would die by crucifixion, but he also documents Peter's ultimate restoration. The whole scene, Peter, do you love me? Well, we know Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written around the same time, and that there's little question John pins after them. I do believe it's a mistake to date the Gospel of John towards the end of the first century, as many do. And here's why. In John 5, verses 1 and 2, let me read you a section of John's Gospel. Didn't comment on it then, left it for now. John writes, After this there was a feast, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. Now, now, don't miss that. John writes, There is in Jerusalem. And he's writing this in the present tense, that presently in Jerusalem there's a, a location. Now what that means is that John at least penned chapter 5 before 70 A.D. And 70 A.D. is when Titus finally came and sat Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed it all. John writing in the present, hey, there is in Jerusalem. Well, this had to have predated 70 A.D. or John would have at least mentioned this. There was in Jerusalem this pool, but he doesn't. Now, I bring that up to say this, and, and, and hey, I have a thesis, a theory. You can't prove it. Can't prove it either way. But to me, it does make a lot of sense. And that is the fact that John likely completes the first 20 chapters of his gospel, much earlier than people believe. And then something happens. Aside from this rumor that he wants to clear up, something else happens to cause him to write this last chapter. And that's that he got word that his dear, beloved friend Peter had been crucified. And that he pulls out quill, parchment, and he adds this final chapter. Yes, to clear up a rumor, but he writes it in many ways, and I think it reads in many ways as a eulogy. That he eulogizes his friend. That he talks about his friend, and he lets the church know, guys, guess what? Peter knew how it was going to go. Jesus had told him. And not only had he told him, but he told him, he'd given this a promise. He said, he said the way that you're going to die is going to bring glory to God. And no doubt Peter's death brought glory to God, which was important for Peter to know, right? Especially coming off of what? The fact he had just denied the Lord three times. You're not going to deny me again, man. And how the church would have taken encouragement from that. He also writes to, to articulate this restoration. Like the chapter will actually begin 
with John telling a story about Peter that had not been previously recorded. And you know all good eulogies end with a story, don't they? So next Sunday is our sabbatical. We won't be here. But the week following, the 14th, we're going to look at the final chapter in its entirety and close up our travels with the Gospel of John. So, Father.